You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For the ANA Champions of Growth Podcast, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Saul Colt, founder of the Idea Integration Company, a Toronto-based B2B agency specializing in comedic marketing, is all too familiar with B2B ads that try to be funny. But more often than not, the attempts land with a veritable thud. It's one of the reasons why Colt created Laugh, Think, and Cry. It's a marketing formula that skews toward the funny, but within a much larger and all-too-human context. Colt says it's not enough to give people an excuse to laugh. The message has to give customers and prospects a reason to think about what precisely is being communicated, packed with an emotional punch. Colt joins me now to talk more about the laugh, think, cry formula, why every company is a media company, including B2B firms, and the reason why brands shouldn't be so quick to poo-poo marketing stunts. Saul, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Saul, what's the tenor right now among your clients, and what are they demanding for ad creative amid this seemingly schizophrenic economy? One day it's going well and we've dodged a bullet on the recession. The next day, a recession is imminent and the sky is falling. How is all of this translating when it comes to budgeting and ad execution? Our clients are mostly optimistic because we're coaching them to be so. When things are uncertain like they are right now, the best path, in my opinion, is always to double down on marketing and advertising for two very important reasons. If your competition is stepping back on their efforts, you can buy some mind share. And if your competition isn't slowing down, but you are, then it'll cost you three, four, maybe even five times as much to rebuild your brand recognition when you do decide to get back to it. That aside, we're seeing a real change of budgets and cutbacks in people we are pitching without that built-in trust that we have with our current clients. You know, the stuff I just told you about doubling down doesn't hit the same, but we are seeing a real shift, which is unfortunate because a lot of brands are going to be hurt by it in the coming months, even in the in year from now, 12 months, six months, eight months, when things sort of shift again. Talk to that a little bit more. What are clients looking for right now? Is it performance marketing? Is it getting that dopamine hits for conversion? Everyone always loves the idea of performance marketing, you know, and I think that's the number one barrier to people working with us. I'm all for people doing it, but what they don't understand is I'm playing chess while most decision makers are playing checkers. They play checkers or performance marketing because they need to show immediate numbers. But my solutions build great brands and sustained revenue, loyalty in a time when loyalty is at an all-time low. I get it. The average stay at a company for a CMO is very low. It's 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 down to 12 months from 18 months because it's the most disposable C-suite position, but it doesn't have to be. We're the secret weapon for brave brands and brands that want to be brave because if you're only focused on a quarter at a time or less than a quarter at a time, your company is not going to be a great company. And that's the reason you are going to be disposable. Performance marketing is important. Direct to consumer and B2B and all those direct response things are important, but they are a part of the puzzle that people don't get. It's not the entire thing. That would be like six years ago or 12 years ago saying, I'm putting all my eggs in fax marketing. And the obvious flip side to that question, Saul, is what about branded advertising? Are you having any clients right now that appreciate branded advertising, but perhaps they're too yoked to lead gen? and this dicey economy to do anything about it. 
is that performance first branded that it's a zero sum question? Is that a false debate? That's the big misconception about me. I'm not a believer in all or nothing marketing. The best companies are the ones that do all the foundational work very well. That includes lead gen. That includes your email campaigns, your nudge campaigns, your nurture campaigns, all that stuff. But it also... The best companies incorporate word of mouth and non-traditional marketing. Case in point, I was the first marketing hire at FreshBooks.com back in 2007. And the reason we were so immensely successful wasn't just because of I was pushing my mandates. We were very successful because of our senior team was myself, a gentleman named Sunir Shah and a gentleman named Mitch Soloway. Mitch ran pay-per-click, Sunir ran integrations and partnerships, and I ran non-traditional marketing and community building. What I do is an incredibly very important piece. I think I put too many adjectives in there. A very important piece in the puzzle, but the brands that ignore what I do will always be looking at a hole in their growth and a missed opportunity. Performance marketing does not create loyalty. Giving a, a BOGO coupon or a 10% off or any sort of incentive doesn't actually make somebody turn to their friend and say, you'll never imagine what this company did for me. This company is great. All sorts of things like that. So is it, uh, Saul, essentially a failure of imagination? Do you think too many marketers are allergic to branding and almost look upon, quote unquote, boring advertising as a badge of honor? For someone with a creative bent, how do you push back with such clients? I'm not sure they're allergic, but there are many reasons people will not take risks. You know, they, they could be scared to lose their jobs. They may be constrained by budget or just not know any better. You know, I describe my team as professionally funny, and that is different than office break room or boardroom funny. I don't push too hard on people. There are a lot of great brands out there we want to work with. We even have a list of 400 brands that we think are a perfect fit. So if a company doesn't click with us or a company doesn't want to work with us, we don't always fight for them. We do sometimes, but we don't always fight because we know that the project will not be one that makes us happy or proud to use as a case study. Aside from having a really an holistic approach to advertising, Sal, you're also a big believer in marketing stunts for one client. You recreated Evil Knievel's famous jump over school buses to sell accounting software. But it seems like that many brands and organizations have lost their nerve when it comes to marketing studs. Why do you think that is? And what's the counter argument regarding the benefits of ad stunts? Before we added additional talent to the idea integration company with other areas of expertise, ad stunts, marketing stunts, PR stunts, whatever you want to call them, were really our main offering. There was a time we even had a television deal and shot a pilot that fell apart where we pulled off stunts for small brands, tracked the creative process, the execution, and the effectiveness. So. I'm not going to guess what changed except to say people need quick wins and stunts do provide them, but the skill set is not inherent. Here's why brands should be doing it with our company or just doing them in general. Brands may not want stunts, but consumers like them. They're fun. They're interactive. They're usually very entertaining, but the real reason to do them is that people love to talk. Now, I mentioned this earlier about turning to your friend and stuff like that. People love to share, um, but they aren't going to do that, or at least they aren't going to do that about your brand unless you give them something to talk about. According to Keller Fay, the world recognized organization, survey organization and stuff, 86% of word of mouth and referrals happen in the real world. That's off of Twitter. That's off of Facebook. That's off of Instagram. There's a bigger world out there than just on social media. And a lot of brands forget that real referrals and real word of mouth is happening 
in line at the grocery store. Oh my God, do you like those waffles? Should I buy them? They're happening at kids' soccer games. You know, oh, you, you always buy this orange juice. Why? That's where stuff is really happening. And you mentioned the Evil Knievel stunt. That's something I'm immensely proud of. It was super fun. And we've done so many more. We were the first agency to use clouds to advertise a cloud-based software service. We did skywriting on top of a huge tech conference and giant stadium in San Francisco on the day of National League Baseball Championship on national television. We own Twitter and Instagram for 10 minutes, which may not sound like a lot, but it's a huge deal. Uh, the CEO of the company that we did the stunt for who lives in New Zealand got a text from friends of his vacationing in San Francisco saying they saw it and thought it was genius. And all that's cool and all that's the fuzzy stuff. But eight years later, the company did a poll to see how many people heard of the brand and 40% of them mentioned the skywriting. These things actually work and they have a long lasting effect. Another time working for a belt company, our insight was that belts are kind of the forgotten fashion accessory. We did a guerrilla fashion show in a busy shopping mall without permission where the male and female models were completely naked except for the belts. This made television, it got a lot of social media attention and most most importantly, the company sold out of inventory in 15 days. Stunts aren't meant to happen every day or every month. I always tell people that stunts are kind of like a slap in the face. There's nothing wrong with a slap in the face if you do it in a certain way. As long as it's not done every day, then it's abuse and assault and, and all sorts of things. But they are the very, very best springboard to good things and a builder of momentum. So I always tell people, this is what you do to start the conversation. And what you do with that momentum is what makes brands great. When I talk about the whole picture and the foundational marketing, this is the thing that gets everyone to look in that direction. And then once they're looking in that direction, that's when you layer on your email campaigns. That's when you layer on your paid ads. That's when you layer on your nurture and nudge campaigns. So it's not all in one. This is a very, very valuable tool tool that the companies that take advantage of end up winning. It's this whole notion of that we're entering an era of earned media, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of marketers fail to appreciate. Do you think that for marketing stunts and similar plays, do you think that's an argument for better alignment between marketing and PR? Not only marketing, PR, sales, I'm a little older. I remember my first few marketing jobs before all these social media platforms and tools and all that stuff. There was an old saying that if marketing and sales aren't having lunch with each other at least once or twice a week, your company isn't going to be successful. It's the same thing with all the key stakeholders, like any companies that are built in silos, and that includes PR, and that includes PR even if you're using an outside resource, they should really be integrated. That's why we named our company the Idea Integration Company. We integrate into your business. You have direct people who are checking in on a daily basis to know if there's any changes, any difference. If there isn't full communication, then you're actually hurting yourself. Do you think that would be a good mandate by the CFO that marketing and PR meet for powwows every month, if not more frequently? If not the CFO, the CEO, it's, it's imperative. As we head into a break, how does your laugh think cry model of advertising work and how does it apply to advertisers from a practical standpoint laugh think cry is a formula i created to know when i'm on to a great idea everybody has ideas ideas are easy ideas are easy for me they're easy for them great ideas are not easy I know that when I'm onto something, when the idea makes someone laugh, makes someone think, and then creates a genuine emotion.
emotion. I use cry for short, but it's really about creating a genuine emotion. That emotion can be sad, happy, confusion, embarrassed, all sorts of things. I use this for B2B advertising and everything we pitch because ideas are easy. You have a, a, a bucket full of them. If you look at the idea and it only makes somebody laugh and it doesn't do anything else, I call that kind of like the America's Funniest Home Videos. When you see the guy get hit in the groin with a golf club, it makes you chuckle for about 30 seconds and then you never think about it again in your mm-hmm. entire life. So it's probably not the winning idea. You know, if you only hit one of these, you know, you need a little work. If you hit two of them, it creates an emotion and it makes you think about something. It could be okay. And you're a lot closer to that great idea. And if you can't come up with something with all three, maybe you can run with a a two to three. But if you hit all three, it's usually gold. And I use this filter to make sure I'm not rushing an idea that isn't ready. I use this filter to know when something needs more time, if we should throw it out completely. A lot of times, two or three bad ideas make one great idea. It's really something that I think everybody should use, but if nobody wants to embrace it, I use it to keep myself accountable for not pitching bad ideas or rushing myself. Does it give you a competitive edge? I believe so. I'm not sure very many people can actually say we've got a filter that we run ideas through to know if they're good. A lot of people just probably use them as a gut feeling or a hunch. I use the gut feeling and the hunch to get to the filter. And then I have the filter to confirm my gut feeling and my hunch. Stay with us. There's more to come. And now for a short break. For a new CMO, the pressure to deliver results is on from the get-go. If you don't take a disciplined approach to onboarding, you'll soon find yourself in a defensive crouch without laying a solid foundation for long-term value. ANA CMO's 90-Day Quick Wins Package is a combination of videos, cheat sheets, checklists, and more to help your first three months as CMO or marketing lead be a success. To learn more, go to www.ana.net slash first 90 days. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Saul Colt, founder and CEO of the Idea Integration Company about B2B advertising creative. You're well aware of the struggle that many B2B companies have with creating a robust content marketing strategy and convincing themselves that they are, in fact, a media company, whether they like it or not. Why the continued roadblocks nearly 20 years after content marketing became a legitimate channel and is now one of the main channels when it comes to buyer behavior? It seems like a lot of B2B companies are just having a devilish time figuring this out. Why? I I lost a prospective client because I told them they weren't a tech company. They were a media company. And I'm not sure why people don't see this yet. Not every company is a media company, but I bet few people think of McDonald's as a real estate company, but that's kind of what they really are. One of the biggest mistakes marketers make is to do what they want and not what their target wants. A lot of people might be uncomfortable with content or creation and it's hard and it takes time and all this stuff. We do a lot of research of the user of each of our clients and we pitch what they will like and not what the CMO will like. And that loses us projects sometimes. We're always very heavy on content for a couple of reasons. One, we believe it really works. It engages and connects with customers, but also we pitch to our sweet spots and we pitch to our abilities too. It's funny as an outside resource, I need to live and die on results. 
content is something that's very easily measurable. When you say, why do people are resistant to it? I go back to one of your earlier questions about demand marketing and performance marketing. Do you rather have a sale or would you rather have 150 likes? But the thing is that one transactional sale is important hundred percent, but those 150 likes could turn into 15 sales. They just may come 30 days later. Very few people have patience anymore, which is a shame because that's how you build sustainable and big and healthy businesses. Is part of the frustration a a failure to look at your company as a quasi media company and b failing to provide that outside in perspective? Too much content marketing is looking from the inside out, and that's roughly a non starter. People are human and they want to be entertained. I truly believe people want to have relationships with the brands that they care about. Content marketing is how you do that. But if you're just pushing and you're not engaging or you're not creating a space for them to actually see themselves in your brand, I don't think it's going to backfire. It's just not going to give you the results that you're looking for. So brands, there's so many smart people out there that they could be working with, especially now with all these layoffs and stuff like that. Every company should be a media company. There's a company that's a, a restaurant recommendation app that we were talking with, tried to explain to them that they're a media company. They're like, no, we're just making restaurant recommendations. I'm like, yes, but you should be the absolute expert on this. The fact that I can make a reservation or whatever with two clips, I actually expect that. What you are is the company to tell me the six places I didn't know about and deliver those recommendations in a really glossy kind of package. It can be online. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. You have to make these six places sexy too, because it's your brand is about communication, telling me things that I didn't know about being the area expert. It's not that you've made it easier for me to get a reservation. I can get a reservation 20 other places. Your thing is you've created lists of the 25 best places for all these different categories. That is your technology. You you think your technology is all the, the ones and zeros that integrate with the reservation systems and know when there's a table. The joy of this thing is knowing that I want to have uh, Mediterranean food right now. And this is the neighborhood I'm in. And these are the six places that are the coolest places I've never heard of. And you can get me in the door. So it's, it's really about reframing what your company looks like and how you deliver these messages. And everyone is so stuck on, well, if we're a media company, our valuations aren't going to be the same. But guess what? You can be a tech company on the inside and a media company on the outside. And that's where people, they lose their way. Sal, I want to shift gears a bit. In late 2021, after a friendly conversation with Bill Morrison, formerly the executive editor of Mad Magazine and writer for The Simpsons, you soon went on to hire Bill and his team of 16 creatives, tripling the headcount at your agency in January 2022. Tell us about that and how the move has bolstered the agency. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, there was this one little bit of calm for a month and hadn't seen any friends for a year. And, you know, we were pretty much staying indoors and playing by the rules. And uh, Bill was in my town for a combo convention. There was a little breath of fresh air there for a while. And I texted him and I asked him if he wanted a home cooked meal. You know, I hadn't seen him in a year or two, you know, over some Portuguese chicken. We were catching up and he mentioned that he would love to find a way to bring the team of MAD together again because they were also 
so great and, and they really gelled together. At this time, Warner Brothers had folded the operations of Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine still exists, but they only issue reprints. You know, he, he was talking about how he'd love to bring all these people together. I said I'd make some calls for him to see if I knew anyone who was interested in adding them. Over dinner, it never dawned on me to make the leap myself. And I was laying in bed that night and I was trying to think how to improve my own business and sort of the light bulb came on, came on because I have a clapper. But I also got the idea of bringing them into my team and making a huge leap in our company. The move has been really interesting and quite a learning experience for me. One, I'm running a bigger and different business. We still do everything we always did. We still do our marketing stunts. We still do our social media. We still do our branding, identity work, and all that stuff, but sort of structured the company to offer different things as department. You know, since the Mad Hires, we've got what I think is the greatest creative team anywhere working. We brought on a woman named Megan Peters, who's an eight-year executive from Facebook partnership team. She runs and owns partnerships on our side. I'm still doing the stunts and the partnerships and collaborations and things like that, but it's just, it's a very different business and it's been exciting. It's been scary. It's been a learning experience. In that sense though, is it scary good for the business? I don't think we've gotten a ton of new projects because of the name recognition of Mad Magazine and The Simpsons. It's opened a couple small doors. The business is growing and we've gotten a lot of projects based on our ability and the fact that we can offer more things and the level of quality has jumped three pegs of the ladder. It's been absolutely great just not the great I thought it was going to be because I thought it was going to be just a slam dunk. I, I send an email. I just say, hey, work with the Simpsons team and people would be, you know, lining up and jumping over each other to do it. That hasn't happened, but we're closing deals and better deals because our level of quality is certainly much greater. And since the new hire started, is the agency now leaning even more into its comedic ad creative strategy? more into perhaps what Alfred E. Newman might do if he was presented with a B2B ad brief. For those of you at home who don't know already who Alfred E. Newman is, Google it and you're welcome. Our work has always reflected my personality and sense of humor. And my sense of humor was developed from being kind of obsessed with Mad and David Letterman as a kid. So I'm not sure we've changed that much, but we do use humor as a differentiator and lean into our strengths. You know, Alfred E. Newman's motto was what me worry. And uh, and ours is always do cool things, tell people. We do cool stuff that isn't always funny. Sometimes it's just smart. One of our favorite campaigns ever was for Yamaha Music Canada, where instead of a contest to give away a piano or something, the prize was surgery to correct 12 people's hearing so they could enjoy more music, the promise of the brand. And we created a slew of content around the process. It was not hilarious. It was far more on the emotional side, but it was way smart. I always say we're professionally funny. I always say this or that, but I also think part of humor comes from holding a mirror up to society and really understanding humanity. And I think that having a room full of people who collectively have worked on humor for over 40 years to make satire, you have to understand people and understand what is funny about things that sometimes are really sad. That I think is one of our differentiators too. You know, not everything is about knee slapping, but it's always about getting people to go, man, like they really nailed it. That's, that's the nugget of truth. And sort of the nugget of truth is I think where great humor comes from too. 
Any recent examples when you talk about professionally funny recent campaigns that provided solid returns and how did the funny align with the product and service, which is the comfort zone for the buyer? A couple projects we're immensely proud of right now. We haven't launched this yet, but it's coming out very shortly. We're working with a great payroll application company called WagePoint, where we created a funny version of their website for them to give people really a choice when they land on the website. Do they want to go to the serious side or the funny side? And it's the same calls to action, the same talking about why this is really important. But for that project, we used Ian Boothby to write it, who's the longest standing writer on The Simpsons. We used Pia Guerrera, who's a wonderful New York Times artist. She, she, she does comics and things for The New Yorker, but as well as traditional comic books and a whole bunch of other work, we delivered something that we think is really smart and funny for people who look at themselves as boring and people who look at themselves as want something different. The company can be both to uh, at the same time to their audience. Another project we're really proud of, we reimagined what an entire product catalog could be for a farming supply company by making a full comic book showing farmers saving the world while using every single product offered by the company. It had all the information on how to order and buy and all that stuff, but you got to see this stuff work in real life while they were saving their farms from evil anti-hydration aliens and things like that. So it's like, we can literally do anything we put our minds to. Brands should be taking advantage of this stuff far more. Just because you can't conceive something really great, which isn't an insult, we have the team who can, I tell you, the bar is so low about customer expectation. They want something a little different that you give them anything and it's like, it's, it's really exciting for them. And it puts your brand in a really good place and in a good way to grab a lot of mind share. So as we start to wrap up, is the talent equation finding new and unique precincts to recruit from, as you did with Bill and his team, is that half the battle when it comes to cultivating not only ad creative, but getting out of this strictly transactional mode that often holds really good B2B advertising back. I'm not sure the secret is to go out of the traditional places to find people because there's some really, really brilliant people working in bigger and fancier agencies than mine. But if you want your work to not be derivative and to stand out, you really need a great team that likes to work with each other and looks for different sources of inspiration. It helps when they have a similar background, as I don't think generic agencies will survive as things get tougher and more and more people are laid off and, and you know start their own things. I believe specialists, not generalists, win. We're a specialist agency. We do a small amount of things better than anyone else. We're never going to try to sell you SEO. We're never going to try to build you a website. We'll refer you to smart people we know that do it better than us. And we're going to always focus on what we do. I want to go back just for a second about that inspiration thing. One of the things that I think creates derivative work is everybody reading the same thing, everybody following the same rule books and everyone being inspired by the same things. I love to watch oddball movies and documentaries. I love to 
read books. The last book I read was the, the biography of Tiny Tim, the world's greatest ukulele player. The more you can open yourself up to bizarre and different things, the more you're going to have a crazy idea that isn't going to be exactly the same as what 10 other people will have. That kind of goes back to being a specialist. More time and effort needs to go into what you want your company to be and then surround yourself by these people, no matter where you find them, then just specifically grabbing somebody with the most number of years of experience or whatever number of awards they've won. There's so much talent out there right now that you could really build dream teams based on your identity and not just grabbing the most expensive person. And I'm sad that there's so many great people out of work right now, but great people don't stay out of work for long. So hopefully things turn around quickly. And we'll have to leave it there. I'm going to add Tiny Tim's biography to my Amazon queue. Sal, thanks so much for the illuminating comments. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Great to chat. To learn more about the Idea Integration Company, go to theideaintegration.com. If you would like to recommend a guest or topic for a future episode, please email me at mschwartz at ana.net. And be sure to subscribe to Champions of Growth wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.